You could spend the weekend doing the same old whatever, or you could conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Welcome back to the MLB.com StatCast podcast. I'm your host, Mike Petriello, joined here by MLB.com National on today's show, we're going to talk about some of our favorite award revote possibilities, question what might happen to the future of sacrifice bunts, and ask where did all the lefties go? These are things we are thinking about as we are hoping for possible good news about the 2020 season, which we all expect to find out about in the next week or two. But the reason I started thinking about award revotes is because our colleague Mark Feinsand has done a couple of these on the site over the last few weeks. What he has done is pulled I don't know, 15 or 20 or so of us, myself included, and gone back to some of the most maybe infamous recent MVP votes and uh, kind of re-voted to see what might happen now with the benefit of advanced stats and different ways of thinking, knowing that nobody in, let's say, 1987 was using wins above replacement. So he, for example, looked at the 1987 NL MVP where Andre Dawson won because he had 49 home runs and the re-vote had Tony Gwynn winning. He looked at the 2006 AL MVP where Justin Morneau somehow won over Derek Jeter. Uh, the revote had Jeter winning. I voted for Grady Sizemore. That was the only right answer. Uh, he looked at the 99 AL MVP where Ivan Rodriguez won over Pedro Martinez. Obviously, the revote had Pedro. And he looked at the 1995 AL MVP where Mo Vaughn won over Albert Bell. The revote had Albert Bell winning. Mo Vaughn in sixth. It's been really interesting, Matt, and you know you are the editor of these pieces. You commissioned them from from Mark, so I know you're pretty familiar with them. To kind of think about how differently, I guess two things. One is you know what you might have voted in 1995 if you were using wins above replacement or whatever, uh, but not just about the the stats and the metric, just about the ways of thinking that it doesn't necessarily have to be the quote unquote best guy on the best team. That was something I found interesting from those. I mean starting with the 1987 NL MVP vote, which is kind of fascinating is, a, you know, part of why Andre Dawson is so controversial historically is because the Cubs were terrible that year. And, um, you know, it was sort of like, yes, he had 49 home runs, but it was like, well, how did this guy on a last place team win MVP? Well, we did the revote and Tony Gwynn, the pod won, and to- the Padres that year had a worse record than the Cubs. <laughs> um, but objectively speaking, um, you know, Gwynn was, was much better than than Andre Dawson was that year. Tony Gwynn that year hit 370, 447, 511 um, with, 50, with 56 stolen bases. Um, you know, led the league in war per baseball reference. Um, so it was easy to see why why he came out on top. Uh, one of actually one of the, I, I, I've always, the 87 MVP vote holds a special place, NL MVP vote, I should say, holds a special place in my heart because, um, Back in my ESPN days, I wrote a piece for for ESPN, um, and it was I wrote it the Hall of Fame the, the weekend that Andre Dawson was inducted into the Hall of Fame, <laughs> and I basically wrote like the only reason he's in the Hall of Fame is because he won an MVP he should not have won, and I got a lot of flack from like wow. fans being like, "Way to rain on the parade." <laughs> <laughs> and my point was 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 basically more to be like. The reason why MVP votes matter is that they like actually carry a lot of historical significance because when it comes time for Hall of Fame or reflecting on people's career, people will go and say, like, oh, what were people thinking of them at the time that they played? And you see, look at Andre Dawson's on Baseball Reference page and we're like, oh, well, MVP, like, oh, that's amazing. 
but it definitely colors their career in retrospect because like you know what like knowing what we know now he didn't really deserve that mvp and, and like i i do kind of believe he would not have made the um the hall of fame if not for the mvp season um granted my view on the hall of fame has kind of changed i've become more of a big hall guy over the years but like you know it's just that's why um i, I find these mvp reboots so interesting because of the, the way they could uh change the way we perceive someone's career it is not that this would change the way we perceive his career because he's an all-time great obviously but it is it's always funny to go think back to like ted williams not winning the mvp when he hit 406 or when he won the triple crown just because in theory sports writers thought he was a jerk <laughs> you know that doesn't change ted williams he's still obviously um amazing the one thing i noticed from that that 87 mvp i think i voted gwyn i probably did but the one that stood out to me was ozzy smith because i guess this is a blind spot for me i grew up thinking of him as obviously like an incredible fielder maybe the best fielding shortstop ever and i knew he stole some bases and added value but i guess i always kind of had it in my head he was a pretty big negative with the bat and then when i looked into it i was like oh that's not true in 1987 he had a 392 on base and he stole 43 bases with 40 doubles like that is an objectively good hitting season to go with being the best fielding shortstop in baseball so i i enjoyed that one because it just uh i don't know gave me a, a new aspect to Ozzie Smith, which I guess I should have known better about already. Um, the other one that I thought was funny here was the 2006 AL MVP. Like, do you, that's the most recent one. Was that at the time, did we all yell about Justin Morneau? I, I can't remember if like, even in the moment we were like, no, what, what's going on. Do you have any recollection of that? I do. I think it was, it was definitely controversial. And like, you know, I said, you know, Ichiro won, I mean, sorry, Ichiro, um, I'm just looking at the, the list of uh, the vote getters that year. Derek Jeter won our revote, but it's actually kind of funny because if you look, if you go on my baseball reference war, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, Jeter was ninth in baseball reference war. So it's not like, you know, I'm not sure like if, you know, if he was the right choice either. I mean, the, 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 the far away best player in the American league that year was probably Johan Santana. But like there was a, at that point there was a run where like pitchers just were not getting any support for um for any any serious support for mvp that's changed in recent years we've seen two pitchers win it in the last you know 10 years which is a lot but i think that 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 kind of mucked things up the fact that like the best person probably um was just not really considered and then you just end up with i mean it's 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 um the the the, the high vote getters and that year it's kind of an interesting list of guys who were um a lot of basically like burned their careers kind of burned fast and bright you had Grady Sizemore had a career year, probably didn't, had a very good case. Vernon Wells, Chinman Wong got some support, Travis Hafner, like a lot of guys who just had like really good but short, um, short peaks. And I was, this is one of those years I always look back to. And it's sort of like when people talk about, you know, oh, East Coast bias, like the, the fact that Justin Morneau beat out Derek Jeter in a very close race, and the fact that like no New York Met has ever won MVP. Like when it comes to baseball awards voting, and this is, I guess, part of why the whole BBWA, where you have two votes in every chapter, like there is no such thing as East Coast bias. Um, like the twins have like done fantastic in awards voting in the last two decades where, you know, Jeter never won MVP. Um, no Met has ever won it, as I said. So um, I think this this year is like a pretty perfect example of uh, the lack of East Coast bias in baseball awards voting. So inspired by Mark Feinstein, we each went and chose some of our 
favorite, I guess. That's a word. I'm not sure it's the right word to use. Uh, award votes that we may have wanted to overturn. As I was going through this, I realized how many of them there were, and I tried not to go with the obvious ones. Like We have talked about Mike Trout versus Miguel Cabrera a million times. By now, I wasn't going to go to that. I thought about like Bob Welch in 1990 winning just because he won 27 games. Uh, but I went with, and this was uh, something that's been a, stuck in my craw for many years, which I guess is silly because this happened seven years before I was even born. In 1974, Steve Garvey won the National League MVP for, I don't know, reasons. Uh, he had 13 first place votes. Lou Brock, this was the year that Lou Brock stole 118 bases, finished second. And Mike Marshall, the pitching Mike Marshall, uh, finished third. Steve Garvey had a perfectly fine year. Uh, he had 312, 342, 469. That's a good year. You know, 21 homers, 111 RBIs, won the gold glove, made the all-star team, had, I don't know, the non-quantifiable early 70s good-looking guy in California looks. I feel like that plays into this a little bit. Um, it was a perfectly fine year. He had 4.4 wins above replacement. That was 17th among position players in just the NL, 17th. Mike Schmidt got robbed, by the way. I know they didn't use war at the time. I get it. 9.7 war that year. He had zero first place votes, finished sixth in the voting. Uh, Mike Schmidt that year had, let's see, five more RBIs, 15 more home runs, a lower batting average, uh, but also played a good third base. But I thought it was funny because um, I went and I looked and I, I did some research on this and I found a quote from Lou Brock from that year. And he finished second. Like I said, uh, 118 steals, uh, hit 306, 368, 381. And I quote, if I steal a thousand bases next year and they offer me the MVP, I wouldn't accept it. <laughs> and that all of these years later, I think is a pretty good sign. Uh, they screwed up. Now, obviously back in the day, team record in MVP mattered a lot, a lot more than did now. The Dodgers that year were very good. They had 102 wins. They won the NL West. But even on that team, Garvey didn't have the highest batting average. Bill Buckner did. He didn't have the most home runs. Jimmy Wynn did. He didn't have the most RBIs. Jimmy Wynn did. And he had, let's see, he was fourth in wins above replacement on his own team. Jimmy Wynn, 7.7. Andy Messersmith, 5.3. Ron Say, 4.9. Steve Garvey, 4.4. Again, I know Ward did not exist in 1974. He was not the best player on his own team. He was not the best player in the league. And yet, he beat out Mike Schmidt. I don't know why this one's always bothered me, but it just... it always has and i feel like whenever you hear about the steve garvey for hall of fame case which he's never getting in yeah garvey's one of those guys that you know as you kind of alluded to he had that he definitely had that sort of like aura of coolness and fame he did a lot of commercials you know when i first started getting into to baseball he was at the tail end of his career but he was still kind of just like oh this is the famous guy that i should know in some ways it's kind of funny that he didn't make the hall of fame because he almost seemed like he'd make, make the hall of fame in the same way that like Jim Rice made the Hall of Fame. Like he had this reputation of being a great player, and that that the, the people who saw him play were kind of like, "Oh, you can't really, you can't really appreciate Steve Garvey if you didn't if you didn't see him in his prime." That that kind of vibe. Um, when I look at 1974 um, MVP vote, the guy that jumps out to me is is Mike Marshall, a reliever throwing 208 innings, <laughs> which is just just absolutely wild and like. One of my favorite, you know, just like the, the, his is one of those baseball reference pages that I just like go and look at and I'm just like in awe of, um, you know, he had that like five year run where he was basically regularly throwing more than a hundred and, you know, 
play, you know, 100, he had his, he went 111, 116, 179, 208, 109 um, in succession, all as reliever, finishing in the top five in uh, Cy Young voting three times and winning it once in 74. And then that was the year he finished, um, finished third in the MVP. But uh, um, yeah, Garvey was definitely uh, a questionable questionable choice. The AL that year was also kind of wild as an aside, because I remember when um, uh, Sean Burroughs was a prospect, and he had also been in the Little League World Series, so he was kind of famous, and he had this reputation. And I remember like reading a story being like, his dad was the AL MVP in 1974, and being like, wait, what? How is some guy I've never heard of <laughs> have won, won the MVP? But I think Jeff Burroughs is one of the more the more like out of left field MVP winners that uh, that uh, baseball baseball's ever had. Yeah, I'm looking at him now, and I I remembered he won, but I sort of thought in my head he had one of those like 45 homer, 310 on base percentage, like 110 cheap RBI season, um, and he didn't really. He only had 25 homers. I guess it was the uh, you know 118 RBIs that tends to sway people. Uh, you you had some as well. What was your first one? Um, the one that actually I, I think um, is also notable is the 1987 AL MVP. Um, George Bell. <laughs> yes. Um, and to me, that's it's, it's sort of the inverse of what I was talking about with um, with uh, Dawson. Because like I think that the reason Trammell was kept, Alan Trammell was kept out of the Hall of Fame for so long was because he did not win MVP in 87 when he probably should have won um or certainly was a better candidate better choice than um george bell and he finished second so um the fact that he didn't win that year i think is what kept him out of the hall of fame for so long granted he eventually did get in and on the uh the veterans committee but tremble uh, finished second that year and bell was sort of like um i guess you know he had a similar um the, the voters were consistent that year his profile was extremely similar to andre dawson he had 47 home runs um uh, drove in 134. Um, you know, he did slug 605. It's not like he had like a bad year, but Trammell is an up the middle player who hit 343, 402, 551 on a team that, if I recall correctly, the Tigers came back and caught the caught the the Blue Jays in like the last weekend of the season and won the um, won the division. Which is actually sort of it's sort of it's sort of funny in retrospect that he didn't also get rewarded for the fact that you know they. Uh, they overtook the Blue Jays, and that that, um, that Bell's team didn't make the playoffs. I would have thought that, in retrospect, that would have been enough to put um, put Trammell Trammell over the top. Of course, this is also one of those years, kind of like I was talking about earlier with Johan Santana, where probably the best player was Roger Clemens, um, and he finished nineteenth. Um, but according to Baseball Reference, he led the led the league in uh, in wins above placement at nine point four. Um, he went twenty and nine with. In uh, two nine seventy array and two hundred and eighty innings pitched, um, so um, it's kind of he did win the Cy he did win the Cy Young that year. So it's not like the the uh, the electorate ignored his greatness, but it was definitely clearly it was clearly this idea that starting pitchers are not going to win um, uh, most valuable player. Of course, three years earlier, AL voters had given the MVP and the Cy Young to Willie Hernandez, a relief pitcher for the Tigers. So you know, it's not like that. It wasn't a one attempt of consistency from year to year in how uh, they were defining defining value. Uh, in that in that era, that was the year 1987 where Wade Boggs had 200 hits and 105 walks, and didn't even play it the whole season. He played 147 games, so he missed like you know two more weeks worth of games, and he got on base 
305 times plus however many more he reached uh, on error he probably should have won you know i mean 363 that even in a you know in an era where you cared about batting average that should have been enough um i think to get in the win my second one is also going back to the 1970s i don't know why i guess i'm in that kind of mood i actually looked up every most valuable player and i ranked them by wins above replacement and i thought you know it would be fun let's go directly to the bottom let's see which most valuable player um and i'm setting aside you know pitchers here but let's most, most valuable player had the lowest wins above replacement total and that would be willie stargell in 1979 now he tied with keith hernandez but 2.5 war a 2.5 war season um won him the mvp that year or, or tied him the mvp that year i should say it was kind of a weird year there were let's see one two three four five six seven, eight different guys who got at least one first place vote uh madlock bill madlock got one carter kent clove necro ray knight winfield hernandez and keith stargell and in retrospect what was kind of shocking to me and I went and looked some stuff up. I wanted to see what people were saying at the time. And the thing that people were upset about in 1979, when this was a tie was not that the obviously inferior player won the MVP. It's that he tied and didn't win it outright because four voters left him off the ballot entirely. And I wish I had their names handy because cheers to you gentlemen, (laughs) because like, you know, two and a half win season, he was fine. He was 39 years old that year. Um, it, it just kind of feels like a lifetime achievement award. It also feels like, you know, the pirates were very good that year, obviously, and they went to the world series, but you think about these things and you're like, okay, well, it's the end of the year. Maybe there's some recency bias. No, Willie Stargell got off to a very good start through the end of July. He had an OPS of 1001 and over the last two months of the season, 767, <laughs> uh, he had the sixth best batting average on his own team. Keith Hernandez, by the way, that year. Uh, and I know like it, now we only ever think of him as a Met because he was on the 86 Mets and because he's a broadcaster with the Mets and he's like this, you know, internet celebrity and Seinfeld was like the Mets fan and all that. He was really good with the Cardinals for a very long time. And that year he was spectacular. Um, excellent defense, obviously. 344, 417, 513. He actually had way more RBIs than Willie Stargell did. 105 to 82, only 11 home runs compared to 32. So I guess it's partially that and that the Pirates were better. Uh, but Hernandez was listed on all 24 ballots. Stargell was left off of four. So at the time, they were mad that Stargell didn't win outright. They were correct to be mad. It was for the wrong reason. It should have been Keith Hernandez. And you know what? Let's go back to the Hall of Fame. That might push Keith Hernandez into the Hall of Fame. Totally. The fact that he had to share it as opposed to getting it outright. And it's also pretty funny because, like, you know, you could even, you know, if you want to be like, oh, well, you know, the Pirates were good. We want to give it to the best player on the D-. But, like, Dave Parker was. Dave Parker. Great- what? Yeah, Dave Parker, absolutely. Was objectively better by basically every metric. Um, I guess Stargell had more home runs, but that's it. Stargell also missed 36 games. <laughs> he only played in 126 games. Yeah, which is and, he wasn't, kind of... and he wasn't a good first baseman at the time either. Like, Parker's out there destroying people with that cannon, you know? <laughs> uh, it's, that is, uh, that is uh, a, a vexing one uh, to... Uh, just say real quick i was disappointed um i i always like to go back and look and see what people were saying and i was really pleased to find that lou brock quote where he was really salty about it keith hernandez was like incredibly gracious and good for him i guess it, it was so disappointing <laughs> I, I really wanted some more like angst here and i didn't get it um that's too bad um my next choice is finally is the um 2007 nl mvp um 
which um, it's, you know, it's, this is, this was definitely one of these more like narrative driven ones where Jimmy Rollins won. He was the one who had said, like, I think he said like, we're the team to beat this year. And then the Phillies came back and beat the Mets. They came back with like when the Mets collapsed and the Phillies, you know, uh, made up like seven games in the last three weeks of the season. Um, and Jimmy Rollins was very good that year. Objectively, I will, you know, I would not, it was a, you know, 30, 30 season, 296, 344, 531. But again, like, he was clearly not the best player on it. He, to me, a clearly inferior player to Chase Utley. So if you're going to like be like, hey, we want the best Philly, like Chase Utley is just like clearly a better player that year. Also, one of my favorite facts, and I think this is the only time this has ever happened, is that Jimmy Rollin led the league in outs made and yet still somehow won, um, <laughs> won MVP. Yes, I know he was batting leadoff and he played in 162 games. So it's like a little bit like, you know, disingenuous to suggest that he had a bad year because he didn't. You know, he was he as I said before, he was very good. Um, it just always irked me because it was like basically the Phillies had an MVP winner in two straight years. Um, Ryan Howard in one year and um, in 2006 and uh, Rollins the next. And like Utley was the best best of the three players. And it just like I thought it was kind of ridiculous that. He was the one that, that never won an MVP or really came close to winning an MVP. Um, and in both the years, he was, you know, just not just for career value, but also in those years, he was like the better player than both of them. So I always thought that was a, that was a kind of silly. And it was, it always irked me that he was kind of, kind of went unrecognized. I think he's one of the more under, underrated players of, um, of his generation. And uh, uh, the, the MVP is definitely caught, like the fact that he didn't never got that MVP support, support definitely cost him in terms of like his overall overall legacy. It's interesting comparing Rollins and Utley that year. Uh, the voting wasn't even close. Rollins got 16 first place votes. Utley got zero, despite the fact that Utley had a better batting average, a better on base percentage, a better slugging percentage. I'm guessing that voters were just swayed by a shortstop hitting 30 home runs because maybe at the time that seemed special and cool and it just doesn't feel that way anymore. You know, like you said, obviously a very good season. Um, but you could have made a better argument for Utley, for Albert Pujols, for maybe Matt Holliday. Uh, David Ray actually had a, a really good case that year. That probably should have been another one uh, for Pujols. I feel like if we wanted to, we could each name like 15 more of these and completely like <laughs> quantum leap baseball and set right what once went wrong. But I'm not going to do that to everybody because I, I have other things I want to talk about tonight. <laughs> Um, I want to talk about, you know, what I forgot to say at the beginning of the show is, uh, you know, this is the Statcast podcast and this isn't exactly a stat heavy or analytics heavy show because of, uh, what's going on in baseball right now. On that note, sacrifice bunts. This is what I want to talk about right now. If we are fortunate enough to get a baseball season, we are likely going to have the designated hitter in the national league. That's at least what has been reported. And it makes sense. Uh, for at least of the season, because if there's a season, we'll probably get some kind of funky schedule where it's not the divisions and maybe even leagues you're used to. And you'll have AL teams and NL teams playing every day. And it just makes sense to keep it consistent and also hopefully avoid some injuries uh, to pitchers. Now to a lot of people, this is, I don't know, borderline offensive, like liking or hating the DH, I guess is like a religious thing to a lot of baseball fans. I feel like you're legally obligated to have a take and yet I don't like, I see the appeal of the DH. I see the appeal of the national league style of play of not having the DH. I could be swayed either way. I mostly don't care. Like take it or leave it back quickly here. Do you care? And I know it used cares. to be one of those like religious, like no DH DH is, is awful. Yada, yada, yada. But my, I have actually, I've 
this is an issue um, I've, 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 I've flipped on. I think the pitchers have, are just so bad at hitting and that like, it's just a bad, you know, you would never ask, you know, a, a, a quarterback to return punts or a offensive lineman to be your kicker. Like, yes, it would be just like pitchers hitting. It's entertaining. It would be entertaining once in a while, but like that entertaining factor once in a while is far outweighed by just like the overall, like, you know, moment to moment action and like having a better product on the field. So I've actually come, I've come around to being, I, I, I would like to see ultimately um, the DH in both leagues. It's also one of those things where I feel like it's obviously going to happen at some point, whether or not this, this, this abbreviated expedites it, but it's sort of like, this is going to happen. So like, Let's just cut to, let's just get to it so we can stop arguing about it. <laughs> Pitchers last year hit 128, 159, 163. That is a weighted runs created plus of negative 18, where plus 100 is league average. So that should tell you uh, a little something. Now, most of the discussion I've heard about the potential of having the DH in the NL is who would each NL team use and which teams would be better positioned. It basically comes down to the teams that have a lot of good hitters, like the Dodgers, uh, or the Reds of more outfielders that they can count would be thrilled. The teams that don't have enough good hitters in the first place, like the Giants or the Rockies, probably won't be as thrilled. But that's not what I'm interested in talking about tonight. I was thinking that if we suddenly remove an entire league of pitchers hitting, we might inadvertently kill the sacrifice bunt. I'm not saying that's a bad thing. That might actually be a good thing. And what I did was I went on Baseball Reference and I pulled some numbers on this. The Baseball Reference uh, definition of this is any bunt with less than two outs and runners on, uh, which includes bunted balls and strikeouts while bunting. And the reason they do that, you know, it's not perfect. You can probably have something fall through the cracks either way, but especially when you go back through the years, there's not really uh, anything that anybody that tracks like sacrifice bunt attempt, you know what I mean? Like you got kind of, kind of guess, especially in the olden days. So is this perfect? No. Is it close enough? Almost certainly. Yes. So what I did was I looked at the number of sacrifice bunts attempt attempted for each of the last 10 years. And then back in five-year increments, uh, dating back to 1975. And the numbers were exactly as I expected they would be. Pitchers are responsible for way more of the sacrifice bunts now, the sacrifice bunt attempts, simply because there are fewer of them in the first place. So, for example, in 1975, there were 2,455 sacrifice bunt attempts. 631 of them came from pitchers. So that is about 26% of sacrifice bunt attempts coming from pitchers. Now you can imagine why that was three quarters of them coming from hitters, small ball, right? You know, no launch angle, none of that. I, I should have looked up, but I didn't. I bet you in 1975, there are some hilarious examples of massive sluggers dropping down a bunt. I'm sure like Mike Schmidt probably dropped down a bunt that year and we would have all lost our minds. So as I went through the years, you can imagine that the number of sacrifice bunts dropped, sacrifice bunt attempts, uh, but the pitchers still did it. So their share went up. So as I said, it was about 26% in 1975. It's about 30% in 1990, uh, 38% in 2000, and then goes up and up and up and up each year until last year. Uh, I wouldn't say an all-time high. I mean, it probably is, but I didn't actually look at every single year, so I guess I can't say that for sure. But we're going to say it's an all-time high. Pitchers were responsible for 52.8% of all the sacrifice bunts. That was 708 of the 1,342 sacrifice bunt attempts. We are about to wipe those off the face of the earth. Now, I've got some fun facts that back that up. Um, aesthetically, do you do you care? Like, I like a good bunt for a hit. That's fun. Uh, I, I guess I like a, a suicide squeeze. Sacrifice bunts are boring, right? I, I will not miss these 
in favor of guys swinging away. Not at all. Won't, 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 won't miss it. That's another reason. That's sort of speaks to what, you know, sort of saying, saying before, just like it's, and that's, I mean, that, that one of my, one of my biggest pet peeves in recent years, I think this is sort of what started swaying me is like you, you, you watch a baseball game and to this day, announcers still speak, not all, but many announcers still speak and managers in post game will still speak as if the sacrifice bunt is a given. And it's not. That's the thing. It's like, well, like, you know, the pitcher's going to sacrifice as if, like, oh, it's a given that they'll get the, the, the guy will be advanced to base. Where it's like, no, a lot of the time it just doesn't even work. Like, they try yeah, and get the it's hard. Down, and they and they can't. So right. the assumption that it's like a given is, is, I think, part of the problem with the strategy to begin with is that, like, I sometimes still think managers manage as if it's a given when it's, it's just it's just not. And I, th- I mean, I've not researched it, but, you know, in terms of, like, the the, you know, the growth of velocity in the game. Like, I think that like, my guess is that the, the rate of successful buns, and it's hard to track that, but like, that's probably gone way down just because like, pitchers throw harder and breaking stuff is a lot nastier. And it's just like a lot harder to get, to get a bunt down than it, than it once was. So um, it's, uh, I would not be, I would not really be, I would not be sad to see it go. So I wanted to see what teams this might affect. Obviously, National League teams are far more likely to lay down sacrifice bunts than American League teams. And so I have the whole list here. Uh, the Nationals laid down 92 sacrifice bunt attempts last year. The Angels laid down only eight. There were a couple of teams I wanted to highlight here because I thought they were kind of funny. The Dodgers had 70 sacrifice bunt attempts. As you'd expect, a majority of them, an overwhelming majority of them, came from pitchers. Over 91% of them came from pitchers. But then I looked into it. Of the remaining six, one of them was Kenta Maeda pinch hitting for another pitcher. So actually... 65 of the 70 of their sacrifice bunt attempts came from pitchers. Those will be gone. Um, they had a couple from Chris Taylor. I think one from AJ Pollock. Uh, you know, as an analytically inclined team like the Dodgers, you wouldn't expect them to have a bunch of sacrifice bunt attempts. But when I laid this out by league, what I also found was, you know, the top six teams, all nationally teams, that makes sense. Uh, gap for one second. The next six teams, all nationally teams, that makes sense. What in the world is Cleveland doing? Cleveland had 63 sacrifice bunt attempts, which is more than more than half of the National League. I, I don't have any follow up to that other than to say, what? <laughs> like, like, why would they? Why did that happen? Um, and when you actually look, you know, at their players uh, who did it, you know, obviously like they didn't have the pitchers batting too much. Oscar Mercado did it 11 times. Mike Freeman, Jason Kipnis, Roberto Perez eight times. I think, you know, the Cleveland offense wasn't very good. We've been saying that for like two years, right? That the outfield was just not good enough. And I guess Terry Francona's uh, answer to that was sacrifice a lot. <laughs> I wonder if that'll change. I'm not sure if it's a, a good, uh, uh, a great strategy, but it, uh, I could see with that lineup, I could see, uh, see, I could see why he might have felt that way. But if you look at the, the, the numbers, basically, you know, AL teams, the typical AL team sacrificed, you know, let's say around 20 times last year. And I think that's basically if there's that that would become the norm, um, you know. Basically, NL teams would probably all if the DH was across the board. You basically the the high end team would be about fifty, and the low end would be about ten, and most would be in the twenty to thirty range. And that would basically you know, which is basically like oh, you know, a sack bunt once a week essentially, um, which is you know, probably about as often as teams should be doing. It. <laughs> yeah, the funny so. thing is if if we if we do get a season, it's going to be such a weird season for so many different reasons that it's almost like the perfect time to break out the NLDH because it'll be like 
73rd on the list of things that make this season unique and maybe everybody won't lose their minds about it so much <laughs> totally totally uh the last thing i want to talk about here and i i guess i have to give some credit where credit is due to mr matt myers here we will each and i uh god this feels like 10 years ago but i guess it was only three months ago we got together to draft the likeliest pitchers to win the Cy Young this year when we thought we were going to have a full season. Uh, I don't think we actually podcast it. Maybe we did. I don't think we did. Anyway, uh, we we named 20 names, and Matt pointed out once I sent it to him that only two of the 20 names, Clayton Kershaw and Hyunjin Ryu, were left-handed. And as uh, I think you you know, astutely pointed out, like, hey, that's weird. Is, is it weird? Like, we should find out if that's weird or not. So uh, I did it, and I went down a pretty big wormhole about it. And what I kind of found out here was um, we're in a very weird point in time in baseball history, uh, both in pitchers and hitters, in terms of uh, lefties. So let's actually start with the uh, uh, the position players, because it's kind of going backwards here. Not only are there fewer great lefty pitchers right now, there are fewer lefty hitters, but more accurately, fewer lefty throwers. Um, so let me kind of take you through how I did this here. I found that just by looking at lefty batters, right, um, starting, it was kind of, you know, consistent for a, lot, a large part of the century. And starting in 2013, it started to drop and it has remained there. So in 2013, lefty batters took 44.2% of plate appearances. Last year, it was under 41% of plate appearances. That's a drop of like 5,000 plate appearances. That's a really big thing. Where did all those lefty hitters go? So I thought about, you know, maybe is it the shift? It's not fun to be a lefty right now if you're hitting grounders. And maybe like lefties get shifted like three times as much as righties do. So maybe it's that. But, you know, there's good things about being a lefty too. You get the platoon advantage all the time. And it's not like there's not Bryce Harper, Cody Bellinger, all these great lefty hitters. And then here's what I really realized. It's not about lefty hitters. It's about lefty throwers. There are fewer lefty throwers now than there have been in like six decades. Last year, and I, I when I cut, I say a semi-regular player, I'm looking at guys who had 250 plate appearances. There were 37 guys who threw left-handed. Uh, that's only 11.5% of non-pitchers in baseball. That's the lowest. Uh, recent peak was 18% in 2013 and 14. Now we're down by 11%. That's the lowest since 1964. And now I'm just talking about like lefty throwers. And then it, there's a corresponding increase in lefty hitting righty throwers. And so I thought to myself, well, that's interesting. We actually just had the most number of lefty hitting righty throwers, 75 of them uh, ever, ever. And we only had, you know, 34 of those lefty lefty hitter throwers, which was the lowest in decades. So Matt, I am, um, I'm going to stop talking for a second. My theory here. Positional versatility. Everybody wants guys who can play a ton of positions because the bullpens are deep and the benches are short and lefties can't play shortstop. Everybody wants like a Jeff McNeil or a Max Muncie. You got to have lefty hitters, right? But they got to be able to play more than just first base in the outfield. It makes it makes it makes a it makes a ton of sense. Um, obviously, Muncie and McNeil are very good, <laughs> so that's well, sure. <laughs> um, but the positional versatility, I think, is a, is a huge factor here, and this has been a, a trend in the game. For a few few years now, the other thing I thought that was really interesting, um, and, and Mike wrote two pieces about this. One sort of focused on the hitters, and one focused on the pitchers. Was a theory floated by um, uh, Eric Lon? Is it Lonenhagen? Lonenhagen. Lonenhagen. Um, who writes for ESPN now? I can't. Fangraphs. 
fangraphs. I can't keep track. Um, um, right to fangraphs. Um, basically saying that, you know, with the, basically sort of with the advent of like StatCast and TrackMan and technology, they can sort of um, track the rise ball, um, rising fastballs essentially, which is something that couldn't be, couldn't really be done before. There was nothing measuring the spin on fastballs and, and the, the, the vertical movement. It was much easier to, to, for a scout to see a uh, tail on a fastball where sort of lefties match up very well with righties. Um, but when it comes to um, scouting rise, quote unquote rise, uh, lefties generally for, I think it's probably because generally have lower arm angles and don't kind of get the same kind of rise as righties do. And that has sort of hurt lefty pitchers in that, in that, um, in the, in the, in the scouting world. Cause it, scouts are sort of putting, suddenly placing value on uh on the, the, those high spin uh, forcing fastballs and getting that vertical movement, which um, uh, the lefties aren't able to, to, to produce as, as, uh, as regularly. Yeah. What he said was that there was a, uh, from where scouts sit behind home plate, there was kind of a visual bias in favor of lefties because they often do have that kind of tail. And now since a lot of scouting is done by you know, track men or, or other technologies, you kind of look at the movement and you say, you know, it's harder to see that vertical rise, that rising fastball that gets the strikeouts and then the other thing, and this is the, the very first thing I thought of, and I was glad this panned out um, as we're talking about pitchers now, it's, everybody wants velocity. And writers, righties throw harder than lefties. Uh, they kind of always have by about two miles an hour. What was interesting to me is that, you know, we've got this data back to 2008, and righties have kind of consistently been on this uptick, like a portion of a tick a year, uh, and then, you know, up to about 93 and a half last year. The same was true for lefties from 2008 to 2016, and it's been dropping for the last couple of years. I don't know why that is, but it's interesting now. The, the gap between lefties and righties in terms of velocity is the largest on record. And since everybody, even at the lower levels, has this gear and everybody knows how important it is uh, to, to have velocity, that seems like it's a big deal. I think anybody listening already knows what a big deal velocity is, but just in case you don't, I looked at it last year on fastballs. When you throw the fastball 95 and above, the outcomes are 249 average at a 419 below that 291 average and a 514 slugging. You can imagine why that's a big deal. The other thing I found, uh, just going back to hitters for a second, that I found fascinating, last year in the American League, there were zero regular lefty-lefty first baseman for the first time since Babe Ruth's rookie season of 1914. When I say regular, I mean minimum of 400 plate appearances and 75% of games as a first baseman. There were only three in the National League, Anthony Rizzo's a star, Brandon Belt and Eric Cosmer less so, and I think that's kind of because first base is not limited to lefties anymore. Um, there was always kind of this thought that it was a better position for them to play because they had an easier throw, and that's true. I don't know that anybody cares about that anymore. I asked one assistant GM of a National League team, and he's like, yeah, no, I never think about that when I'm looking at first baseman. Um, and by the way, for both pitchers and hitters, I looked at this going down into the minors and in the draft. Fewer lefties are getting drafted. Fewer lefties are making it through the minors. The last two seasons had the lowest percentage of lefty pitchers being drafted in the last 25 years. And so, uh, Matt, are either of your children lefty throwers? And if so, how do you still feel about that? Um, they are not, but, you know, that used to be like a thing. And I guess it's, you know, it's not really, it doesn't seem like it's really a thing anymore. So go figure. Yeah, I, I, I can't tell you how many people have, uh, not how many people, but like my mom, for example, and family members have seen uh, one of my kids pick up a ball with their right hands and say, oh, too bad. I, I guess you're not going to have that lefty and maybe I don't care anymore. Uh, whether this is cyclical, whether this is a thing that continues, I don't know. 
Uh, but I had a lot of fun digging into this and uh, again, credit to you for noticing. So that is our show for this week. This is the MLB.com StatCast podcast. Thanks so much for listening.